Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking from a text. It's in the book of Romans, and we're going to be focusing on chapter 8. And what's really interesting is before it was a book in our Bibles, it was a letter. It was a letter written by this man named Paul, a brilliant thinker, amazing theologian. And he's basically making this interesting case about how we should live our lives, or, or more accurately, how believers thousands of years ago who would gather in homes or in synagogues, how they should live their lives as people that started to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And what's interesting about Romans and the rest of the Bible is it's actually not just an instruction manual. It's something way more beautiful than that. It's a theodrama or a theological drama. And I want to, if you sum it up in four words, it's like the cliff notes of the Bible. It's like in Genesis all the way to the very end of the book or the end of the act, if that's your style. Four things really happen in the context of Scripture. We see creation, we see the fall, we see redemption, and we see renewal. Now, don't skip all your Bible reading plans because you have those four magic words, but that's the story we see written in the, in the lives of people, and that's the story we see written by the Holy Spirit through authors who pen those, those words for us to read thousands of years later. In Romans 8, which is a very popular passage of Scripture, one that I often come back to, we see Paul saying something in this letter to this early church, this group of believers who maybe were gathering around tables just like this in first century AD, and they were also eating Domino's pizza and enjoying 12 bottles of Sprite. And they're kind of receiving this letter, and I think they're also having a reaction like I've had, and maybe you've had to your life circumstances. They're thinking, this can't be true. Like they're reading Romans 8, it wasn't called Romans 8 back then, it was just a letter from a trusted friend. And they're reading this advice, they're reading kind of this, this inspiration, they're trying to grapple with how they're supposed to live in this new identity as Jesus followers. And I think that they're coming across the text and thinking, I'm not sure this is true, or I'm not sure Paul really understands what's happening. And we can pick it up in verse 31. So if you have your Bibles or an app with you, it'll also be on the screen. I just want to read these eight verses to really help us develop our framework for the next few weeks in this series called More Than. And I'll start in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also, along with him, graciously give up us all those things. Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Verse 35. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, not anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We read that passage now, and I think that our attention goes to this idea that we're more than conquerors. Like there's this positive idea kind of talking about our true identity in God. But if we think about the surrounding verses, I'm not sure that this was the most encouraging letter at the surface. Like I don't know about you, but if your friend ever texts you if you're having a hard day like these believers were in first century Rome, and that your friend texts you and says, hey, you're going to face death all day long, consider yourself to be a sheep to be slaughtered. 
happy emoji. Like, that doesn't really work. <laughs> so I think when they got this letter, they were having to grapple on separate, several different layers. Paul speaking in faith, and maybe they weren't exactly feeling very faith-filled in that moment. They don't feel like more than conquerors. Externally, they're dealing with the pressures of Rome. They feel like a Roman government is, is actually conquering them and their culture. Politically, probably racially, they're in the minority. They're trying to navigate people within their own tribe, believers in God, the Jewish people who some were rejecting the claims of Jesus. So everywhere they're going, they don't feel more than, than anything. They feel discouraged or discounted. They feel disconnected, like they don't fit into any community very easily. And it's interesting that almost all of the book of Romans leads us to the crescendo of Romans 8, where Paul speaks faith, and he speaks it in such a way that must have been confusing to the very first listeners, the people that were reading this letter days after it had been written. They don't feel the things that he's talking about. They don't see the things the way he sees it. And that's what I love about Scripture. Scripture is designed to help you and I see things a little bit differently. And Romans 8 isn't built for us so that we can know what decision to make in every crossroads of our life. No, Romans 8 for us is a framework on how to see God, how to see ourselves, and how to see those around us. And it's interesting that he is saying, hey, you are more than conquerors. I don't know about you, but I've been following Jesus for well over a decade, and there's a lot of days I don't wake up, and I'm, I don't wake up feeling amazing. I'm not like, yes! Alarm went off at 6 a.m. Just kidding. 7 a.m. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm more than a conqueror. Take that. No, I don't feel that way. Maybe you don't feel that way either. And what's interesting in this text is that Paul is encouraging us not to live just with what we see in the natural, but to live in light of what we can see in the spiritual. He's helping them remember their true identity. He's helping them to ensure something that can easily happen to any of us. He's helping them to make sure that their circumstances don't define who they are. And what's really interesting is that that can happen in your life if they're good circumstances or if they're bad circumstances. We can take our cues on who we truly are when things are going really well, but also when things are going really poorly. If this passage is asking us to center our lives, not on what we see, not on what we feel, not on what we experience, but who we are and whose we are. That's what I love about the Bible. Yeah, it's a messy book full of crazy characters, and there's lots of things that I don't understand or would pretend to be like, yeah, I would do that the same way, God. No, I grapple with a lot of the Bible, but what I love is that it provides this objective hope, this objective anchor, so that I can find a way through the messiness and the brokenness of life. Romans 7 and 8, if you're familiar with the text, talks a lot about suffering. And it basically makes this argument that if we learn to suffer well with Jesus, like Jesus did, then we'll also be able to live in glory with him. And so it's giving us a taste of what heaven could look like. It's speaking the good news to people that are having a difficult time. And it's saying, not only is God real here, but imagine what God will be like there and later. And when all things come to the completion, all things are renewed in him. I love how this passage focuses on this kingdom principle that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. 
I love how the onus in that phrase or in this passage is on God's love towards me and not my love towards God. I love how it's talking about God as someone who pursues and initiates. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 1800s, has talked about Jesus and he said he's the hound of heaven because he's pursuing us. In the Psalms, the sons of Korah write this hymn and they say, goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. I love that there's this idea that someone is pursuing me and someone is going to be faithful to me even when I'm not. Because a lot of times I don't always love Jesus in a consistent way. I don't always love in relationship and friendships or in family relationships in a way that's always consistent. But I love how this passage isn't talking about our strength and what we're doing, but instead it's placing us as a recipient of the goodness of God. It's so easy to come into an environment or a community like this, whether it's Chi Alpha or another great campus ministry, and to think that, man, I just got to do all these things so that. I heard someone once say that if you have to do things, then it's probably not grace if there's a have to. The whole story of Scripture is inviting us to live attuned to the voice of God. A voice and a person that's pursuing us, pursued in creation, pursued at the cross. You and I will never have our lives together in such a way that we would want that onus of responsibility on us. But instead, Romans 8 gives us a picture of what it means to live with the idea that God is pursuing me and nothing can get in the way of his love. I mean, there's some pretty tough things that we kind of just like read over, like death, angels and demons. Like, hey, thanks for throwing the supernatural in there, Paul. That's going to be easy to explain to Georgetown and American University students a thousand <laughs> years later. Appreciate that, bro. But he's basically giving us this picture. He's reminding them that as they hope to put their faith in something greater than themselves, that the main initiation of that faith isn't in ourselves, but it's in God. See, we can often come to this passage and get really focused on our identity as more than conquerors and forget that we're only given that identity when we actually see God for who he is. That our God is a more than type of God. He's more than kind. He's gracious. He's more than passionate about you. He's reckless in his love towards you. He's more than faithful to you in one moment. But scripture says that he is the beginning and the end. He doesn't just exist in those places, but he oversees all that's happening. Our God, the God of the Bible, in the person of Jesus, we see someone who is more than just interested in being in a friendship with us, but someone who is inviting us into a new family. In the person of God, we see someone who is more than comfortable with my weaknesses and still pursues me. The God of the Bible gives us a portrait of someone who's more than patient with inconsistent people. I don't know about you, but when I read the Old Testament or the First Testament, I get so angry at God's people because I'm like, they keep messing up. Like, there's this one story maybe you're familiar with, like, it's pretty cool. Uh, there's this guy, and he's leading like a million people out of slavery. Pretty awesome story. And, and there's this like the Red Sea. It's not really red. That's just what it's called. Um, and then it just like splits. That's like a mic drop moment, right? Like, I don't know if you ever had like a sea split in front of you. I've been to the beach. never happened. 
But he's like walking through there. The Bible says that like, man, their feet aren't even wet. And then like there's these people that are very capable. The oppressors, they're coming with chariots and swords and AK-47s. And then like they're going through and then it just like crashes down on them. And then like a few days later, they're like, God, why aren't you faithful to us? We really don't like the manna that you're delivering. We could use some sriracha sauce. This is not good. Ah, why have you forsaken us? And then someone actually has the gall to say, man, it was so much better when we were enslaved. Like, we should just go back and do that slavery thing. We used to think it was bad, but we tried the manna. No, let's go back to that. And then I realized as I'm reading those stories that really the Bible is reading me. Because there are times when God has been so faithful to me, so faithful to the dreams he's given me, so faithful in my family life, so faithful in providing resources so that I can do Chi Alpha. And then one or two days pass by and I'm like, God, where are you? Where have you been? It's so interesting that I feel like I'm very gifted at the wrong things. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Like, I feel like I'm very gifted at eating like nine Taco Bell items like at any given point in the day. <laughs> I feel like I'm very gifted at injuring my back even while playing table tennis, which is so lame. Yeah, I shouldn't have laughed that hard. That was mean. I feel like I'm so gifted at remembering the things I should forget and then forgetting the things that I should remember. That there are things that God is writing in my story, and I keep going back to who I was and not who he's making me. Or maybe there's things that he's done for me, and I quickly forget them when a new challenge comes to be in front of me. I hope that as you experience college, whether you're a senior or a super senior or a super, super senior, or maybe you're a freshman and, and you walked in, I hope that what you would understand is that college is a time for you to experience change. Nobody comes to a university or college in D.C. to stay the same. But I hope that we would be mature enough to apply that to our faith life that we would be willing to be a part of a community that's more than a club, that's more than Thursday nights, that's more than just a Bible study, but we would be willing to ask life's big questions. I hope that your time in Chi Alpha is one where you feel encouraged, where you feel affirmed, but I also hope that you feel challenged. Challenged to think more deeply about those long-held beliefs that you come in the door with. Challenged to love people that look and vote very differently than you do. Challenge to realize that Jesus isn't always on your side in every opinion that you hold. Challenge to live a life, as scripture says, worthy of the gospel. Challenge to live beyond your feelings or emotions at any given moment and to pursue him in a way that's devoted and disciplined and also that leads to delight. This community is very imperfect. I am a very imperfect leader. Everyone that's worked with me or for me is absolutely nodding right now. Alexis has spent like 14 hours in the car doing errands with me. She's back there saying, amen. Yes, he is imperfect. <laughs> What's great about this community and why I fell in love with being a part of a group called Chi Alpha about 12 years ago at the University of Alabama is that I was a part of something where faith was at the center and that I was invited to live my story with others around me. And then I gave them permission to speak into me, and I spoke into somebody else's life. The challenging part about having a community like that in D.C. is that we have to stop seeing people as the competition. There's this joke at AU, and I'm sure there's probably a joke like this at Georgetown. There's two people talking, and one person says, did you apply for that internship? And the other person says, yes, I did. They go back, hey, how many languages do you speak? They say six, and it's like, oh, you're probably not going to get it. <laughs> 
What's interesting about academics, what's interesting about you being in this room, is that most of your life, you have achieved really great things. You're here because you're really good at school, social justice, at civic engagement. Maybe you're just really good at writing college essays. But life isn't like school. It's not pass and fail. It's about learning and growing. And sometimes I have to remind myself that the God that I serve, yeah, he's interested in the destination, but he's also interested in who I'm becoming on the way there. He's interested in the process, and that means that I can't just be obsessed with the promise. If we look back to Romans 8, I want to highlight something, and then we'll take some Q&A in just a moment. I want to go to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul writes this from the context of experience. Paul isn't someone who's just really engaged in the theoretical ways to live out the kingdom ethic, but this is his life. Like, he has experienced hardship because of his beliefs. He's experienced disconnection in relationships because how he pursues God. And so he's not speaking from a place of, yeah, this is a nice theory. You should go try it. He's saying, hey, follow me. Look at what I'm doing with my life. Look at what God has done in me. In another place, in another letter that he wrote, he says, look at all my accomplishments. And then he like lists them. I love how Paul does this. He'll be like, I probably shouldn't brag, but if I could, and then he starts to brag. <laughs> like he invented the humble brag. It's awesome. It's in the canon of scripture. I love it. He's like, ah, I don't want to brag, but if I could, here's nine verses of my accomplishments. And what's interesting is then he says, hey, I count it all as trash. I count it all as garbage. I count it as nothing compared to the goodness of God. If you're a follower of Jesus and you came in this room or maybe you're a freshman, I've said this so many times, but I have to repeat it. It's, I don't necessarily think that your view of God is going to become dangerous or incorrect during your time in college. I think your view of yourself is the area where you might mess up. As I've walked with college students for the past eight years, it's not often how they view God that necessarily trips them up in their life in college and afterwards. It's that they start, letting, they start to let something else define who they were. They stop realizing that who they are and whose they are is revealed in Scripture and the person of Jesus and the power of the Spirit from the love of a good, good Father, but they started to see themselves in a way that they weren't designed to see themselves in. And what's interesting is the way we see ourselves really determines how we live our lives. Okay, hey, I think Alexis is ready for some questions. If you're not, you can make some up on the spot, but make them easy, please. That'd be great. <laughs> Um, Blaine, you said that we are being welcomed to live into the grace of God. How can I do that when I'm surrounded by the noise of politics? No one got like eight names. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. I usually say that just to buy myself five more seconds. But it is a good question. I think the way we do that is by practicing kind of habits or engaging in the ways of Jesus. They're also called spiritual disciplines. 
I think it lets a, a spiritual disciplines in the words of Dallas Willard is what we do so that God can only do what he can do in us. So that's fasting or praying or the discipline of celebration, Sabbath and rest, Bible reading and meditation, prayer and community. I think we have to be really honest with how much time and effort are we willing to invest in our relationship with God and in our relationship with others. And I think very soon in your college career at AU or Georgetown or another university, you're going to want to choose a path of career overall or resume building overall. What's interesting about this relationship with God, someone once described it as this dynamic dance that we get to be a part of, that we're not leading, but we're just trusting the person that is doing the leading. So I think one of the ways we do that is through spiritual disciplines. I think another way we do that is by prioritizing times of community. And I hope it's a kind of, but it could be elsewhere, but there's a New Testament letter, and it goes something like this. It says, like, do not give up gathering together as some people have. So even since the miracles of Jesus were fresh in the realities of time and space, people were giving up on community, or they weren't prioritizing community over life's urgent things. And what the New Testament would say is that man, we have to be willing to live out our values, not just when it's easy, but in fact when it's difficult. So I think a lot of asks is how are we positioning ourselves to hear his voice? And I, and I think that so much of the questions I have about God, about life, about vocation, are already answered in Scripture. So many times in my own college career, I was like, God, why aren't you speaking? But I wasn't really being faithful to engaging with this word. So it was like I was complaining about something, but I wasn't living in the goodness of the reality of Scripture. So yeah, I think that's how I'd answer that. Do you have one or two more? Mm -hmm. um, so this one is kind of similar, sure. but if you want to elaborate, feel free. Um, someone said, what if I don't feel pursued by God? How can I send you my way? There will be a point in every person's life when that text could be true. I think we see that in the wisdom literature of the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We see that in the life of Job. There's not really an easy answer, a silver bullet, or, or a magic equation or formula that would help get someone out of a desert moment like that. Because there are times in our life where we can be engaged in the spiritual disciplines, we're invested in community, but it just doesn't feel like things are clicking in our inner life. In the words of St. Ignatius, it feels like we have these disordered attachments that are holding us back from the life that we're called to live. I was, in, I was an undergrad at the University of Alabama, I know you're all very impressed. And um, I found myself dealing with depression, anxiety. I had this great relationship with a friend of mine and it just kind of went like haywire. I was taking like way too many credit hours, eating way too much McDonald's. My life was pretty crazy. And I remember crying at my grandmother's house in Amarillo, Texas in front of my dad, which is something I would never want to do. And I had to come to this really raw point in my faith where I had to answer this question. Would I serve Jesus if he did nothing else for me for the rest of my life? Or I could put it another way. Was the cross enough? Or was I just seeking him for his blessings? I'm not saying that the person that texted that is doing that. But I know that for me, I had to come to a place where I said, you know what? If nothing else changes in my life, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you because you're good, even if I don't feel it. 
I'm going to follow you because you're true, not just because I want you to be true. And I'm going to follow you because of what you've done for me. That's not an easy place. It's not a place of growth that I would wish on anybody. But I don't necessarily think that we're living out in our muscles of faith until we get to a moment like that. Because at least in my life, I'm not sure I really sacrificed or really followed Jesus closely until I had that moment and the years after that followed. I think before that, it felt like a fairy tale or a Sunday school lesson. And then when it came real about my emotions and my circumstances, yeah, I had to come to a point where I was honest. And I said, you know what? I will follow you, even if you don't do this, or even if you don't come through in this way. It kind of echoes from the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They basically say, hey, we're going to trust God, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't deliver, even if he doesn't show up in my circumstance the way I want to, I'm still going to believe I think we all come to that point, and I think I would encourage you to um, look back on God's faithfulness, look back in gratitude and what he's done in your life, and then to keep asking that question and not disconnecting. I think our, our doubts about God can either distance us from him in community or they can draw us into him. I think it's a great opportunity to draw in, but I wouldn't want to wish that situation on anybody. Anyone more like this? Yeah. Um, somebody asked. How do you take part in community when you don't feel like a part of community? Yeah, I think community is awkward for everybody at some point. I also think it takes a while for the benefits of community to kick in. Like, you don't often, like, show up once and then it feels like you have best friends, although that's how, like, we want it to work. I think that almost everybody at any point in a community feels like the odd one out of that specific community. C.S. Lewis talks about friendship in his book, The Four Loves, and, and, and he says something really interesting, and it's echoed in Life Together by Bonhoeffer, and it's kind of this idea that there has to be some type of commonality for community to work. In other words, like community doesn't work if people are just in it for community. Does that make sense? Like, I, I like the idea of playing guitar, that's why I played rock band, but I never played guitar. Like, it's not impressive if I like played rock band with the worship team, like Natalie would never let me. So I think what you have to realize is that, man, community is gonna take a while for the benefits to kick in while you're investing. And it's absolutely tempting and understandable when you don't feel apart, you're like, I don't know if I wanna invest. I don't know if, I, if these are my people. I don't know if this is my tribe. But I think it's important for us to realize that we don't show up to community just to receive, but to also give. And if you're in a position where you're feeling vulnerable or insecure in community, there's probably somebody else in that same group of friends on that same floor in your dorm, in that same class that's feeling the same thing. And I think that you can kind of begin to live into that and find someone else who can say, yeah, me too, I feel that way. And then begin to experience like love and grace with them. Um, but yeah, I think that if you're not feeling that about community at any point, you're probably not living in deep community. I think that if you've never thought, man, maybe I'll never come back again. I'm not sure you've lived in such a way where your heart's open, where you're living close enough to somebody to be hurt, That's or good. to be shocked, or to be in pain. Um, I think we all want to be kind of protected uh, and live like a, a Disney-esque idea of community or friendship, but I just think that doesn't exist. Is that the last one? Let's do one more. I promise I'll stop after this. Take your time. 
Okay, so we got a couple of these um, based on parents and what they think uh, about people's religious um, background. But this one says, um, how do you deal with your parents thinking that you are going crazy because of how religious you are? Um, but another person also asked, how do you talk to your parents um, when about the growth experiences that you're having with your faith in college and it doesn't seem like they understand it? There's this great text in the book of Matthew where it says, like, no one has ever sacrificed relationship or sacrificed um, uh, wealth for the kingdom or for the sake of Jesus that won't be repaid in this life and in the next. I love that, like, as a promise to kind of build into my framework of how I engage with faith and then close family relationships. I love that there's something built into scripture that says this might be challenging to work out your faith and your family, but if you're faithful, you'll see a reward. I love how 80% of commands in Scripture come with the reward. I don't think that's by accident. I think God made us that way, and he's inviting us into that. He knows that sometimes we won't choose a path based on our maturity, but we'll choose it only by necessity or only on hope that something will get better. I think to the second part of that question, I think you, I think you slowly and patiently share your experiences with them. And then realize that you're not responsible for them in any way. You might be responsible to them, like responsible to live out the gospel, responsible to be loving and caring, but you're not responsible for anyone's reaction to your faith. I think sometimes when we have this great moment with God at a retreat or at a conference, we're just like, I want to tell everybody about it. But it took us probably like three or four years to get there, and then we're hoping like our friend or roommate or mom gets her like in a 10-minute FaceTime call. Or like we were at the World Mission Summit a few years ago at Kyle, there's like 8,000 college students, and half of them were saying, I'm going to give a year in overseas missions. And they're like, whatever you do, they're telling us from the stage, don't go like into the breakout session and like FaceTime your mom and say, like, I'm going to move to this country, yeah, I'm going to have the gospel. Like this is a person that probably like changed your diapers, took to your first day of pre-K-4 picture for you. Like they've been with you when you've been consistent and inconsistent. So I think you kind of get to live out some of those family values of patience and grace, but in reverse, kind of upwards towards your parents. I think dealing with family is interesting as an emerging adult, because scripture tells us we're supposed to honor our father and mother. It's actually the first uh, command that we see in scripture that has a promise that we'll live a long and fruitful life. And what's interesting is pre-adulthood, honoring equaled obedience, like just doing whatever they said. Now, like as an emerging adult, you're trying to figure out how do I live my own life but honor them even when I don't do what they want me to do. And then I think it comes down to the very difficult question is, who is the Lord of your life? Is it your parents or is it Jesus? Now you don't tell them that or you don't tell them that I said that. <laughs> like, stop using, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the question at play is like, who am I living for? And then why am I doing it that way? But I think it goes back to this idea that I'm not responsible for anyone, but I'm responsible to people. Like, I'm not responsible that everyone at American in Georgetown would hear the name of Jesus and, like, really like that I wear flannel and come to Chi Alpha. No, I'm just responsible to abide with Jesus and then spend extravagant time with people talking about Jesus and hopefully looking a little bit like Jesus. So I think we can take off that weight of expectation that feels like a backpack very comfortable for AU and GU students. That's probably how you got to the university, because you like wore that backpack well of expectations. 
But you're just being invited to follow Jesus and then to like let your life and your words be on display for others to see. But yeah, I think be as patient with your parents as they were when you didn't know how to swim, when you didn't know how to use the bathroom, when you didn't know how to ride a bike. Just remember those things and remember that everything you're telling them is filtered through their experience of being with you in some pretty messy and awkward moments and then trusting God with the rest. Okay. As the van comes up, as we continue to think through what our response would be, one of the reasons, by the way, that we do this is like we never preach or teach for applause or like just for knowledge or so that like someone would live tweet a sermon. No, we teach and preach so that we would have an action, we'd be biased towards action in following Jesus so that we would express something about uh, something from scripture that resonates with us. We would express it in song, we would express it in prayer. So as maybe you're thinking of where you're going to spend your time this semester, you're trying to imagine, does, does there really, is there really a God who pursues me, who's good, who's faithful? As you think through these big questions, I think sometimes the most spiritual response we can give is open hands. I love the picture of open hands and, the, and this kind of prayer and meditation from the Quaker tradition. It's this idea during worship and prayer that you would kind of lift your palms up and then Every few moments, you kind of put your hand over, and, and that really signifies, like, you have to let go of some things to pick up some better things. See, I think I view life, like, as if it's, like, just, like, addition. Like, I can just keep adding things to my life. I can add a little bit more Jesus, add a little bit more devotional time, add a little bit more consistency in my church community or campus ministry. But the reality of life is you can't just keep adding forever. There comes a point when you have to let go of what you thought you knew. You have to let go of what you thought you wanted. You have to let go of, of how things were. And Paul talks about this. He, he says, you have to take off the old self and put on the new self. That's why in his letters, especially to the church in Rome, he spends so much time saying, man, the Spirit of God is in you. And that probably sounds as radical to you as it did then back then. He's basically saying that if you believe in God, there's something taking place inside of you that's beyond the material, that's beyond the functional, and that's beyond the tangible. So I don't know what it is that you need to live more open-handedly with. Maybe it is your, your preferences in community. Maybe it is your desire to have the perfect resume, but you realize that you can go pretty fast, but you're going to go alone. Maybe you're so... You're so wanting to control this semester and the next few years. You've got this plan and it ends with you being president somehow. And you're just like so dedicated to it. But the Lord is saying, hey, why don't you live open-handed? A lot of times I come to prayer and I feel weighed down. I feel burdened. And I don't realize that it's, it was me who was holding on to all those things. Jesus tells us that his burden is easy. His yoke is light. In scripture, we find that the Sabbath, a day of rest, a day with no work, no chores, no duties, was made for us, not us for that law. So I want to pray for us. So why don't you stand as you're able? We're going to sing a song and pray in response. Maybe you do need to find someone to pray with someone at your table. Maybe a life group leader from your campus. Maybe a staff person. But I want to invite you. I want to invite you if you feel comfortable, but maybe especially if you don't feel comfortable. You would just lift your palms up. That's just an outward physical sign of what I hope the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you. And then if you're anything like me, you have to turn your hands over pretty often in this prayer exercise because you realize there's things you're holding on to that you weren't designed to hold. 
God, I pray that as we open our hands and our hearts to you, God, as we turn our hands over and we let go, may we let go of who we were. May we're letting go of a habit or something that we're addicted to that's controlling our life. Or maybe we're just letting go of what we thought was going to happen this semester. God, when we have faith to trust that you are good and that you are strong and that you are with us, we believe that in your name we pray. Amen.